Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet you want a look that is timeless. And you also want a custom experience, creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly, and they're also easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. And by the way, their covers are both removable and washable. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofa and sectionals made for outdoor living. Cozy now has expanded from just an online market to a first-person space in Toronto, or you can go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com, C-O-Z-E-Y.com, to start customizing your furniture now. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball, and thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can get more from Milk Street by following us on Instagram at 177milkstreet. There you can find free recipes, cooking tips, videos from our world travel, plus much more. 
That's Instagram at 177 Milk Street. Now, please enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. And this is Supreet Raju, co-founder of One Rare, a food metaverse game. So the OneRare NFTs are basically focused on a very simple idea. How we cook at home is exactly replicated onto the blockchain. So let's say at home we are craving french fries. Now to make french fries, the most basic things we need are cooking oil, potato and salt. In OneRare, you can simply claim the french fry NFT by collecting the ingredient NFTs of these three particular things. So you come into our food wars, you can farm for them or you can buy them from the farmer's market. And once you have the cooking oil, potato and salt, you can head to our kitchen, check out the french fry recipe uh, and then in your wallet automatically these ingredients would be taken away and what you'll be left with is your french fry NFT. That was Supri Raju, co-founder of One Rare. So what exactly is a french fry NFT and what does food in the metaverse really mean? So to help us better understand, I'm joined by Abigail Kaffler, She's the author of the Bustle article, How Will We Eat in the Metaverse? Abigail, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get into the interesting and confusing topic of eating in the metaverse, (laughs) uh, let's define a few terms. Uh, What is a metaverse? So the definition varies depending on who you talk to, but it's basically kind of a virtual world that has a lot of different components. So it could include virtual reality, augmented reality, and often when people are talking about it now, there's an element of cryptocurrency that people are using to participate in it. And that's kind of the digital economy of the metaverse. Okay. So what about NFTs, you know, non-fudgeable tokens? I think most people know what they are, but maybe we should start with a clear definition. Yeah, so it's a way to record who owns something virtual. So that could be, for example, an old tweet or a piece of digital art, or it could be um, a certificate to a specific food item, which we'll talk about. And that's something that you can trade, you can sell, and it's recorded that you're the one who purchased it. Going through your article, it seems to me there are two categories. Mm -hmm. There's a category where... The metaverse interacts with real life in some way where you actually do get to eat a meal right. instead of having a, a non-fungible token for you know a, a Singapore curry that you can't eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are versions of the metaverse that exist entirely in the metaverse with no real-world connection. And, and that's the theme I'd like to follow up on as we go along because it seems to me when you connect to the real world – it seems to be more interesting to me. But in any case. I agree. (laughs) So let's do the dinner club. Yes. Um, This one has a real world connection. How does it work? So this is called dinner DAO. And just to define another term, a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. And it's an organizational model that's used a lot in this space. And what I think is interesting about this is that it's basically a supper club, except instead of, you know, Venmoing a friend or someone puts their card down to get the points, you purchase your membership in cryptocurrency. And then that amount of money that everyone puts in, I believe there are eight slots. That's what the money that you use to buy the dinner. Okay, let me just call this out, okay? You don't need an NFT to do this no. or a blockchain or anything else. I mean, you could just have a supper club. You could have done this using a telephone. Right. So why is the NFT or Discord 
central to this idea. It just seems like it's an old idea, a supper club, and someone's kind of making it, you know, sexy. Absolutely. I think for a lot of the members, at least so far, they are already interested in this space. And it's a great way to meet different people. Um, because sometimes, let's say you start a supper club through I don't know, alumni of a school or everyone right. who has a child at a certain school, you know, it would already be people in your network. Whereas the rule for this one is you can't invite more than one person, you know, in real life. So it's supposed to sort of use that like third degree network connection, which of course there are other ways to do. But I think the appeal is that it's a way to experiment with this technology in kind of a low stakes way, because you can try out new apps, you can try out new crypto currency, but it's only a six month commitment. People are paying the equivalent of about $300 for a couple dinners. It's kind of low risk. Okay. Now let's get to an example that's a bit more virtual, uh, one rare. We heard from the co-founder, Supreet Raju, earlier about creating a French fry NFT. Yes. And I, I have to say, I just don't get this. Virtual restaurants and virtual farmers markets, could you explain this to me? Does this really have a future? Yeah, so One Rare is kind of billed as the world's first food metaverse, and they try to really capture a lot of aspects of the food world. The restaurants will have dishes from an actual restaurant. There's a digital farmer's market where there's ingredients. Um, wait, 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 wait. Yes. Have dishes. These are virtual dishes. Right, but they do correspond to actual menu items, and while it's not necessarily practical, for example, if I'm on one rare and I purchase a dish from a chef in Singapore, you know, I'm in Brooklyn. That doesn't mean I get a free flight to go to Singapore and try it. That would be cool. But it means that theoretically, if I do go to this restaurant, I would be able to use my token to get that dish. So, OK, so I get the token. I don't go to Singapore. Right. But I have a token. What does it actually get me? So it would be kind of added to your wallet and it's just a way for you to appreciate a cuisine or a specific dish. You can also trade it or sell it. So perhaps there's someone that you meet in one rare browsing the farmer's market who does live in Singapore or has plans to travel there. And then they might have something for, you know, a restaurant in the U.S. So there's that opportunity for exchange. But unless you actually show up at the restaurant, you don't get anything tangible. But I do think there's a gaming element too. So you don't have to purchase things all the time. You could also just kind of bop around and visit different areas. And, you know, the founders really want people to, one, kind of learn about global food culture. That's a big passion of theirs. And then the other thing is they want people to just learn about the blockchain and get comfortable in this space. You know, how does it work to buy something with this technology, et cetera? Now, what about the Norwegian wine company? This one actually makes sense to me. Uh, but you want to explain how it works? Absolutely. So WIV, which is a Norwegian wine NFT company, they work with vineyards in Europe to sell NFTs that correspond to specific wine vintages. So it's almost a pre-purchase to a specific vintage of wine, and then they securely store the wine. So again, it corresponds to real wine and it you can trade it while it ages or eventually, you know, consume it or own it. And their big pitch was that, you know, winemaking is a super expensive endeavor. You're spending years growing the grapes, fermenting without ever seeing a dollar. And a lot of winemakers struggle to get financing from traditional banks. Um, so this is a way that they can get funding, get capital from people who are interested. And it doesn't have the same structure or collateral requirements as, you know, a conventional loan. Yeah, that, that, well, it provides cash flow in the early years. Right. And it provides something, you know, it's my bottle of wine. Totally. Um, and the NFT is the perfect way to assure you that you have it. Um, so let's back up uh, a few layers 
and talk about the metaverse a bit. I, I guess my question is, what do you think is the primary emotional motivation of people who, who think that the world wants to live, at least in part, in a metaverse? So I think it really varies. I think some people use it as kind of a get-rich-quick scheme or, you know, just, oh, I have to get in this gold rush. So that's not really something that compelling to me. But I do think that when people talk about there's the phrase Web 3. So it's sort of if Web 2.0 is like you have a Facebook profile and you have your Gmail and all those things, if you look at it, that's just you're filling out a form that some company designed. Whereas all these projects are very much starting from the ground up, you get to decide which things are important to me. So I think there's a creativity that I heard about and um, a desire to experiment that I heard about from a lot of the people in this space, or even Dinner Dow, you know, it's a fun way to meet people. There's a low barrier to entry. And for the people who are part of it, it's a really valuable community. So I think kind of experimentation and community are two of the driving forces from people who are active in this space. So is there one thing in all of this you're really excited about? where if this metaverse thing really does work out, is there something you think is is really helpful to humanity in all of this? So I, I spoke to Andrea Hernandez, who's a food and beverage forecaster with under the Snapshot, and she's based in Honduras. And she was talking about how it would be really cool if NFTs, because it's harder to get traditional bank loans there, or crypto could help, let's say, farmers or agriculture workers have an ownership share of the work they're right. doing or similar with restaurant workers, that you have some type of equity. And I think that's, that's a very ambitious project and it's not going to be as lucrative, which is why fewer people are working on it. Um, but I think just from like a worker empowerment perspective, you know, unions are obviously having mm. a big moment. I think that's a big area of interest for the food world is, you know, labor, obviously. So if there's a way to improve working conditions via giving people some control or ownership via this technology, like, I mean, there's a lot of kinks to work out and a lot of logistics and skepticism and risk. But I think that that would be something that I would potentially be very excited about because it would just address something really urgent. Yeah, that's interesting because stock ownership is complicated. Right. And this would be an easy way to bring people into ownership. Um, Abigail, thank you so much. Uh, I'm not sure I'll be visiting the metaverse anytime soon, but maybe I should. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Abigail Koffler, author of the Bustle article, How Will We Eat in the Metaverse, and founder of the newsletter, This Needs Hot Sauce. One corner of the food metaverse that's rapidly growing is Dinner Dow. Those are supper clubs where folks organize online and then meet in real life for dinner. We spoke with one Dinner Dow member, Amber Case, who told us about the joys of eating dinner with strangers. You know, sometimes if you're really into a specific thing, you know, maybe you go on the conference circuit and there's a speaker dinner for all the speakers. And you sit down, you get this nice free dinner and you get to meet each other. And here are these predetermined people for you. But what about in your own city? <laughs> you know, who's actually there in your city that you can meet or you, you didn't know? I think if, if you just have your friend group, it's less likely to be, you know, a totally random group of diverse people. But when you're having dinner with some strangers, I think it's really exciting because it would be very hard to do that on your own. It's just, it's just harder to do that to get outside of your social group. That was Amber Case, a core member of Dinner Dow's Portland, Oregon chapter.
Now my co-host Sarah Malt and I are ready to solve your culinary mysteries. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, Chris. So here's the deal. I make pizza a lot. Like in all these recipes are like use half a teaspoon of yeast, you mix up the dough, <laughs> knead it, put it in the fridge for a cold ferment for three days, and it's really important to develop the flavor. My deal now is like why not use a ton of yeast, right? I use massive amount of yeast and just do it the same day and you get this bubbly, wonderful, lively dough and you throw it either on the grill or you throw it in the oven and it bubbles up and it's got a great crust. So I'm in the massive yeast category. This whole little bit of yeast and three days in the fridge. I mean, I'm sorry. It's just like, well, I come think on. It's, I mean, I hear you. You want to know how I make my pizza dough? You buy it from the no, local no. <laughs> pizzeria? No, I, I could never know. live that down. Yeah. No, heck no. no. I use the rapid rise yeast and I yeah. throw it in the food processor with yeah. some flour. And then I, you add hot water because it's rapid rise. And uh, I add a little bit of oil for flavor. Whiz it up, let it rise for an hour, and then it's good to go. Yeah. Boom. Do you use a whole package? No, you don't need to use that much more. I mean, you are looking for a particular texture. I like bubbly. Yeah. Then, I want a real bubbly then, you know, crust. Go for it. Do it. I even did one once with two packages of yeast. You're a wild man. I'm going to go for three next week. Do it. I think the American Yeast Council should... Pursue this. <laughs> absolutely hire me. Yeah, you should lead the charge. Promoter. There you so, go. All right, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jessica from Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Jessica. How can we help you today? I recently wanted to make some uh, lavender sugar cookies for my cousin for her birthday, and I didn't like any of the cookie cutters or the stamps that I was finding. I did come across a uh, cookie press, and so I thought, well, these shapes and designs are really cute. Let me try that. So I found out the hard way that cookie presses are made for spritz cookies. The batter is, I presume, thinner than sugar cookie batter. So I tried it with the sugar cookie batter, did not work. And so I was comparing the recipes, and I noticed that the ingredients seemed to be more or less the same, just in different proportions uh, between a spritz cookie recipe and the sugar cookie recipe. But the spritz cookie recipe had milk in it, and the sugar cookie recipe did not. And so I was wondering, can I add milk to a sugar cookie recipe so that it'll thin it out enough so that I can use a cookie press? Or is it really just a matter of the cookie press is made for spritz cookies? I would uh, tend to say find a good spritz recipe and then, uh, you know, just uh, how are you going to add the lavender to it? Uh, I was just uh, blend it up and mix it into the batter. Uh huh. I just think why try to adapt something? You said the proportions are different, too, and that's relevant here also. Yeah. Baking is pretty exact. I'm not saying you can't adjust okay. it, but that would be my okay. inclination to just find a really good spritz cookie. But let's see okay. what Chris has to say. I think the problem is spritz cookies have a higher proportion of fat to flour. Yeah. Okay. And they have to have just the right texture to get through the little plate at the bottom, you know, when you press them through. Mm. And some spritz cookies have milk, some don't. So it's just okay. a fat to flour issue. So I totally agree with Sarah. Just get a spritz cookie. The sugar in the cookie, I would throw in a food processor and add the lavender to that and just process for about 45 seconds. And that's a good way of okay. distributing the lavender flavor in the cookie. But I, I would do spritz cookie because it's just a different animal than a, a sugar cookie. Okay. Right. Okay. So. There you go. And let us know how it goes. All right. Absolutely. Yeah, we like to hear back. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. Thanks for calling. 
This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen, give us a call anytime. The number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Amy from Cincinnati, Ohio. How can we help you? Well, oh, wise ones, I have a question for you about short ribs. Bone and short ribs are increasingly hard to find and, of course, very expensive. So when I was trying to find the five pounds that I needed to cook, I could come up with about three pounds bone in and then an additional pound without the bone. My question is, at what point in time in the cooking, these are going to be braised in red wine, do I add the boneless pieces? At the same time, do I wait? I throw them at the same time. First of all, it's the internal temperature and the collagen breakdown that's going to determine the cooking time. With a Mm -hmm. bone, it will change cooking time a little bit, but you're not dealing with, you know, a large bone and a lot of meat. And so what I would do is put them in at the same time, And then I'd start checking maybe 45 minutes or half an hour before they're supposed to be done. I would just temp Mm -hmm. the boneless ones to see if they're done. If they are, you can just take them out. The other thing is it's pretty hard to overcook short ribs. I mean, they're just going to keep getting tender. So if they get to 195 or 205 or whatever, it doesn't really matter that much. Okay. You can braise short ribs for an extra half hour. It's not going to hurt them. And you very often do that when you reheat them anyway. So Mm -hmm. I put them at the same time, maybe half an hour before... They're supposed to be done, temp them, you know, with a fork tender. If they're fork tender, you can take them out and then finish cooking the others. Okay. But by the way, boneless short ribs are now at Mill Street sort of our go-to stew meat. Mm. They're really delicious. They cook up really well. You can actually cut them in smaller pieces. You can even actually stir fry it sometimes if they're small enough pieces mm. or saute it. So um, it's a great cut. So, Sarah? I agree. Uh, they are different, though. As Chris said, they're cut from the chucker shoulder. And they're not generally as fatty as the bone-on short ribs. So there is going to be somewhat of difference in flavor and texture between the two. I agree. Put them all in together and then just see how tender they are. The thing about the boneless ones is they don't have as much fat. Well, that's why I like boneless, too. It's less fatty, which is really nice. Yeah, except fat has flavor. You can always remove the fat later. This is the Midwest. We're not afraid of fat. (laughs) Yeah, but if you cook a whole thing of bone and short ribs, you're going to get a ton of fat. Of course. And then you save it, it put it in the freezer. And you cook your potatoes. Yes, thank you. Okay, there we go. I knew you were. Good idea. (laughs) Oh, dear. We can't do this anymore. I'll pretend next time I'm Chris. You pretend you're Sarah. We know all the answers. (laughs) We do. At any rate, yeah. Boneless short ribs are just a great cut. Yeah. Amy, thank you. Okay, yes. good to know. Okay, thank you. Care. You have a great one. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, a lesson in Chinese cooking from Chris Thomas and Stephanie Lee. That's coming up right after the break. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, over the last decade, Las Vegas has become one of the most unique culinary destinations in the world, and not just on the Strip. It's a city with culinary innovation everywhere you look. Here's one chef's story sponsored by Las Vegas. Hi, I'm Adrian Garcia. I'm the executive chef over at Main Street Provisions. So Main Street, we do new American cuisine with uh, emphasis on steaks and chops. It's an open kitchen, so you always see me at the pass making sure all the food that goes out, we put a lot of love into it. 
Personally, I've always loved seafood. And our seasonal fish dish right now is uh, steelhead trout. We actually get whole fillets and uh, we air dry them. So it's nice and crispy. Uh, we do confit marble potatoes, braised fennel. And then we actually make a seafood broth with shrimp, clams, lobster, tomatoes, ajillo paste, which is a chili paste from Peru. You can eat that broth with anything. The chefs here can be very innovative because Vegas is a destination. You get people from all around the world, so you can open up any type of cuisine and you'll have an audience here. People are always seeking new and new exciting uh, things to eat. So this is a great spot for chefs to just uh, create and you don't have to go to the strip to find a five-star meal anymore. You can just uh, be on the outskirts and find a restaurant there that, you know, that could be a Michelin star restaurant like Mastry Provisions. It's off the strip, but I still serve one of the best steaks in Las Vegas. You know, put my name on that. <laughs> From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. In 2017, Chris Thomas and Stephanie Lee started their YouTube channel, Chinese Cooking Demystified. They travel around China in search of the best recipes and techniques, such as hot dry noodles from Wuhan and egg wrap potato from Guoyang. Chris and Stephanie, welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us, Chris. Pleasure. I love your uh, YouTube channel. Uh, I love your work. Uh, we actually have a friend in common, Kenji Lopez-Alt. Um, he was just telling me about your scrambled egg method, <laughs> which I watched, by the mm-hmm. way. I was really interesting because I like um, – we share the same kind of preferences. You like eggs that are moist, rich, and silky. I think the French refer to it as snotty eggs because <laughs> they're they're not dry and overcooked. But could you explain how you do your eggs? It's really an interesting method. Uh, Chris is the egg guy between <laughs> us. I'll let him tell the story. Uh, yeah, so the uh, specific kind of way, it's uh, it's called hua dan. Um, there's a few different approaches to it. The one that we did in our video, uh, basically we just kind of added the eggs to like a hot wok and then waited until there's just barely bubbles forming around the edges and then just kind of scooping it up over itself. And the nice thing about uh, Hua Dan is that you can put a bunch of different things in it. I believe in that video we put a chassis barbecue pork in it, mm-hmm. but you can put beef and a number of different things. But the, there were two other things about it that struck me. You separate the eggs to start, and two, you use cornstarch in the mixture. Yeah, the uh, the cornstarch thing is actually a little bit less traditional. It's a little bit a little bit of our own thing there. But yeah, the uh, the separation, especially because there's one dish called a uh, huang uh, pu cha dan. How do you say that in Cantonese? The huang bao. Yeah, huang bao. And that one, the separation is incredibly important. It's basically a more traditional version where it's just eggs and 
that's about it. There's a lot of apocryphal stories about it. Some people say that you need to even whip the um, egg yolks so much that it basically creates stiff peaks, uh, the point where like a really? pair of chopstick can sit in it. But there's, yeah, there's a bunch of different ways to approach that dish. You did a wonderful video on chili oil, which just drives me insane because I, I, I get totally confused. And yeah, I think you end up with like more than a dozen bottles <laughs> and explaining the different varieties. So could you just give us a short course in how to buy chili oil and what the basic differences are? I think right now from what I saw in uh, supermarkets in the U.S., the major type are the Guizhou one, which is like the Laogama type, the Guizhou style, which is like toasted chili flakes that's fried in chili oil. Generally speaking, I would recommend sticking with like the more reputable, like tasty brands like Laogama. And another one that I've seen recently, it's called Cui Hong. That's a pretty famous brand from Sichuan that makes really decent Sichuan style pure chili oil, like the chili oil without chili flakes in it, but it's already seasoned with spices and aromatics. Um... This will be the two major brands that I will look for at a Asian supermarket. Let's talk about cooking rice. Um, you have this great method. You're talking about stir-fried rice, and you talk about you don't have to refrigerate it overnight. If you steam it, you can stir-fry it right away. Could you describe that? Because that was really, really interesting. Sure, yeah. So basically, uh, the idea of steamed rice is that you're going to be first par-cooking it. So you're basically just doing that for three minutes or so. And then what you'll do is you'll transfer it to a steamer and then steam it for ten. 10 minutes. Thank you. And traditionally, what it would be is if you go to the southwest of the country where there is a little bit more of a culture of steamed rice... The steamed rice culture remained more in Southwest. Right. So if you're going to Sichuan, let's say, oftentimes you'll walk into a restaurant and there will be these big buckets of steamed rice that you can just kind of serve yourself some rice. And there was one video where I literally just took a, you know, kind of like a mesh strainer and put the par-cooked rice in that. And then just kind of like use that as a makeshift steamer, putting some right. aluminum foil on it also works brilliantly. You had this wonderful, one of your videos, you had a little shot of a New York Times recipe for stir fried rice uh, and you kind of made fun of it. Um, w what was wrong with that picture? In other words, when people do stir fried rice poorly, what are they doing wrong? Uh, I, I think, um, okay, <laughs> how to put this? Usually it feels like the rice that's, it kind of looks wet. A lot of those fried rice recipes I saw, they tend to use a lot of sauces. And water makes the rice wet and clumpy. And the texture is just weird. While a lot of fried rice here in China, you don't use that much sauces, unless the sauce is like oil-based. Uh, you season it mostly with like the fried mm. rice ingredients that's also a big part of where the flavor comes from and you also season it with salt or some msg or chicken bouillon powder like generally speaking it's more like dry ingredients that's giving the flavor of the rice 
Now let's talk about chopsticks. Uh, you use chopsticks for almost everything in your videos. <laughs> uh, maybe you could just give us a short lesson in cooking with chopsticks. Hmm. Yeah. Where, where to begin? I think like, yeah, we use chopsticks as whisks. We also use it quite a bit when stir frying. You know, for example, like whenever you would use a tong in like Western cooking, you can use chopsticks. And then another thing that you can do is you can uh, use it to kind of estimate oil temperature. You know, you can basically tell more or less what the uh, oil temperature is looking like based on the intensity of the bubbles that are coming out around the sides of the chopsticks. Uh, but yeah, no, cooking chopsticks are awesome. You talk about century eggs or 100-year-old eggs. Um, how would you use 100-year-old egg or century egg in your cooking? Yeah, I mean, probably I would say the most classic century egg dish would be having it together with kanji. So it, this is something that if you're in China, you can even go to KFC and for breakfast, they'll have a century egg rice kanji. Well, can I ask you about that? Because I mm -hmm. saw that in your video. So they actually sell that at KFC? Yeah, they do. KFC China does a very great job localizing. It's very creative. They sell like the Yo Tiao deep fried dough sticks. They sell uh, Portuguese egg tart that's from Macau. They sell wraps with like the Peking duck sauce and deep fried chicken in it. Uh, it's very fun. They should just have an Asia version of the KFC and reintroduce it back into the United States. I think you put it in like huh. uh, New York or L.A. or something. I think it'd be yeah. quite popular. That's a good idea. Um, hot dry noodles. You know, what are hot dry noodles? So hot dry noodle, dry means no soup. And you eat it while it's like really hot. So... It's kind of an interesting component of characters. The noodles, because it doesn't have soup, the major flavor comes from sesame paste. In the old days, the noodles, it's mixed with sesame paste and toasted sesame oil. And nowadays, people kind of like change the toasted sesame oil into using like a master stock in flavoring it. And it's a really popular classic breakfast item in Wuhan. You know, one of our regular contributors here at Milk Street, Alex I News, he told me that when he researches recipes, uh, he goes on to, you know, local internet sites from China, for example. Everything's in Chinese. And he finds this, you know, huge wealth of people demonstrating how to make, authentically make different dishes. And he said, now that's really, this is his primary sorts of research. Is this uh, the same type of thing you guys use when investigating a recipe? Uh, yeah, of course. Especially in recent years, there's this boom in Chinese internet that's like people in the village would start filming cell phone videos of them just cooking their daily stuff. And I love binging this video. So it's like, real village life and you don't necessarily like research a certain specific dish it's just for me at least I like to immerse myself into watching people from different areas cook yeah you know we kind of talk about like yeah, maybe researching really shouldn't be that hard all you really need to do is you google the dish name you go to wikipedia you find the 
name of the dish in the local language, then you just go to YouTube, copy paste, and then you have all of right. these people that are just making it. And you know, you, right. at a very quick glance, you can kind of see the real deal of like how it's made. So last thing, is there something you could suggest that everybody here at home could include and make part of their regular repertoire? So I think not necessarily dish per se, but just think of it as like a formula. That's how I learned to cook growing up watching my parents because like they both work and they are busy. And one really quick formula that we almost eat every day, it's basically you have some vegetable components, let's say pepper or onion or broccoli or gailan, like the Chinese broccoli, you prep them on the side and you have some meat components like pork livers or chicken pieces, you marinate it. And what you do is you fry the meat first separately and take it out. And then you just toss your vegetables in and fry your vegetable components. And when the vegetables are done, toss your meat back in. Um, that is a very useful stir-fry formula, I'll say. You can just mix and match anything you want. Hmm. Guys, thank you very much, Chris and Stephanie. Uh, I love your work. I love your YouTube channel. Um, and I love the fact that we really learn a different way to think about cooking. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. That was Chris Thomas and Stephanie Lee. Their YouTube channel is called Chinese Cooking Demystified. KFC has over 8,000 outlets in China, more than double McDonald's. Its success is based on adapting food to the local culture. So for breakfast, you can order minced pork congee with preserved egg, beef and egg oatmeal, or mushroom chicken porridge. Or you might want to try the Six Gods Flour Dew Coffee, which is inspired by a famous mosquito repellent that has a strong mint and floral aroma. One day, I expect, KFC will adapt its menus here in the States to reflect its experience abroad, much like Pigeon English eventually changed how foreigners spoke back home. Many expressions, including long time no see, are actually based on Mandarin. Both language and food cut both ways. What is imported gets adapted and then exported back to where it came from. Now that's real cultural exchange. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Here's J.M. Hirsch with this week's recipe, Mexican-style corn with chili and lime. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So I went to Oaxaca, then I went to Mexico City, and then you went to Mexico City. And then I guess you'll go to Oaxaca, right? So we'll both go to the same place. Uh, but we both ate a lot of street food. I had my favorites. You had your favorites. Tell me about the thing you love the most. As you know, when you travel, you just stumble upon things and suddenly your eyes open and, and the world reveals itself to you in a new and delicious way. And that's what happened with this dish. Walking down the street, this guy shoves a cup of something at me and it was yellow and it was white and I wasn't sure what it was. Well, it turns out it's esquites, which is a form of Mexican street corn, which the corn has been grilled usually or roasted, and then the kernels cut off the cobs and simmered with herbs and lime juice and chilies and cotija, which is a salty Mexican cheese, and crema, which is kind of like a Mexican uh, sour cream, and for a creamier touch and a slightly sweet and tangy touch, mayonnaise. And 
I was not expecting to love it the way I did. But when I tasted it, I got to say, I was blown away because it hit every single flavor note that I crave. It was sweet. It was creamy. It was savory. It was herbal. It was spicy. It just, it was everything. And you just eat it by the spoon out of these plastic cups standing on the side of the road. And like I say, I did not expect to love it as much as I did because it seemed kind of so simple and, and unexpected, but it was one of the favorite things I ate on this trip. Is this one of those recipes that makes sense from a cart on the side of the road, <laughs> but makes absolutely no sense when you do it at home? You know, I don't think so, because here in New England, we get great corn in the summer, and all you do is cut the kernels off the cob, and you simmer them with some lime juice and some herbs, and then you throw in your cayenne pepper and your sour cream and your chilies, and pretty soon you have an amazing way of eating fresh corn. And you can actually do it with frozen corn out of season, but when corn is in season, it's so much better. And it's just such a fun, simple, and really delicious way to appreciate fresh corn. Yes, if you are eating it on the side of the road in Mexico City, it will taste better just because of where you are and the experience, but you're also going to love it at home. So I do have one question, which is Mexican corn, in my experience, is a little starchier Mm -hmm. than sweet corn in America. Does that change the balance of flavors at all? You know, they were using a sweet corn for this every time I had it. And so, you know, you're right. You know, Mexican corn tends to be a lot starchier. This tended to be a much sweeter side of their corn, which does tend to be starchier than ours, but not so much so that I noticed it in this recipe. So you went to Mexico City. You liked the tacos, but you loved <laughs> the esquites, which is corn <laughs> with crema and mayonnaise and cotilla cheese and lime juice and just sounds absolutely fabulous. Thank you, Jam. Thank you. You can get this recipe for Mexican-style corn with chili and lime at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Adam Gopnik cries tears of joy for seafood in Venice as well as breakfast in New York. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I use my basement music room to record this show, and I've been looking for a leather office chair for ages now. The good news is that I just found one. It's called the Gervin Charm Tan Office Chair, which I found on a great furniture site called Article. Article offers a wide variety of designs from mid-century modern, coastal, and industrial to Scandi and Boho designs. 
Article also offers fast, affordable shipping across the U.S. and Canada. You pick the delivery time, and they'll send you updates every step of the way. Plus, the prices are more than fair. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash MilkStreet, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash MilkStreet for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. This is Christopher Kimball. You know, if you want to taste the world, travel to Las Vegas. It's one of the most international food cities in the United States. Here's one Baker story sponsored by Las Vegas. My name is Kimberly McIntosh. I am the chef owner of Milkfish Bake Shop, and I am a 2024 James Beard semifinalist for Outstanding Pastry Chef and Baker. I would say that the definite fan favorite would be our carioca dessert. Carioca is a Filipino street food that's like a coconut mochi fritter tossed in a coconut milk glaze and then some caramelized coconut curds called latik. And then I also added a really amazing Philippine sea salt. It's one of those bites of food where you get a different flavor every time. I don't think people are necessarily expecting that with something that looks so simple. And it piques their interest to see what else we have to offer in terms of how we represent Filipino food in a different way. I think Las Vegas is one of the ultimate dining scenes in America. You know, you see a lot of chefs who are based out in New York, based out in California, and what do they want to do when they want to take it to the next level? You want to open a restaurant in Vegas. It's been really cool to see a lot of celebrity chefs come out here like Jose Andres, Mark Vetri, David Chang. But also having that in combination with the incredible local talent that is here in the restaurant scene. Like I've never been somewhere that has this really great African kitchen, but they also have this really authentic Thai restaurant. People see a lot of other businesses being able to shine and being able to succeed out here. And I feel like that's really motivated a lot of people to share their food as well, which has been really exciting to see. That was Kimberly McIntosh. From restaurants helmed by celebrity chefs to locally owned eateries, experience an incredible dining scene like nowhere else, only in Las Vegas. To learn more, go to visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Again, that's visitlasvegas.com slash culinary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to take a few more calls with Sarah. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Steve. I'm calling from Somerville, South Carolina. Hi, Steve. How can we help you today? Well, I've uh, developed kind of a baking habit, and um, lately uh, the people for whom I bake have decided they'd like me to try making things that don't have wheat flour in them anymore, that don't want the gluten. And I've been experimenting with oat flour that I make by spinning rolled oats in my food processor. And in cookies, that seems to work okay, but in other things like brownies, there's a distinct graininess that is not pleasant. And I'm just wondering if you have any suggestions on how to not have that be a problem. You grind up your own oats, did you say? Yeah, I'm just buying like uh, Quaker oats and uh, spinning them in my food processor. And I've tried doing it in a blender as well, and that doesn't seem to do any better. What kind of blender do you have? It's an old Hamilton Beach. Yeah. Here's the problem. You need the sort of blender that really would make a milkshake out of me. They're high speed. They cost about three, four hundred dollars. I'm sorry to say, but they really—that's the kind of blender you need. Or you could just buy oat flour. Ah. The problem is, it's just not fine enough because you don't have the right tool. Chris, any thoughts? Oats have those little gnarly bits. I mean, commercial oat flour will be significantly finer and better. I would also strongly recommend almond flour, which I keep in my refrigerator all the time. It makes great cakes. There's a Spanish almond cake I make like once a month. It's got a great flavor, you know, and there's lots of gluten-free recipes that are based on almond flour. So if I was going to pick one flour that doesn't have gluten, I would pick almond flour. But you would buy it. You wouldn't make it. Yeah, you buy it and there's plenty. You can actually, there's a lot of, you know, companies out there that make all sorts of flour. Sometimes using almond flour tastes better than just using all-purpose Particularly flour. Particularly in a brownie. I think it'd be delicious. Yeah, that would be my recommendation. Yeah. And do you just substitute it one-to-one? I don't think so. I think you need to use a recipe that calls for almond flour, oat flour. You know, if you want to substitute, then you have to get a gluten-free mixture, which has cornstarch in it or potato starch and white rice ground up and brown rice ground up. It has lots of things in it. There are plenty of recipes out there, especially, you know, the Middle East and other places. Almond flour is used all the time. The thing about almond flour, though, is, again, I wouldn't make my own almond flour because you tend to end up with almond butter. And it sounds like maybe you'd need to buy the oat flour. But I would use a recipe that was designed to be gluten-free, not try to adapt a recipe. Yeah, Perfect. Okay. Steve, I really thank appreciate you. it. I'll go try and yeah. find out. Thank you. All Bye-bye. right. Take care. Bye-bye. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Suzanne from Philadelphia. How can we help you? So I have a question about the best way to cook eggplant at home. Um, It's one of my favorite vegetables, and I feel like every time I go to a restaurant, I have this delicious eggplant that's like charred skin, silky, smoky meat. But then when I'm making it at home, it's always kind of dry, tough. I can't get that like good flavor. 
How are you cooking it at home? I usually try to roast it, and then I never know, should I, like, press it, or I feel like it just, like, sops up the oil. Are you roasting it whole, or are you cutting it into... No, I'm usually cutting it into little chunks. The easiest way to do it is to roast it whole, and I put it on a grill, sort of medium heat, but... You just cook it to okay. death until it looks like it collapses on itself. I mean, it looks like it's... Like a balloon that's yeah, deflated. It looks like you really overcooked it. It looks gnarly. Okay. And you let it cool, and then you can slice it in half and scoop out. And it should be oh, like good okay. baba ganoush. It's going to be very loose and creamy. And then um, I love to put tahini in it is really good. Pomegranate molasses is really good with it herbs in it, you know, whatever. But it's, you just have to cook it to death, essentially. If you're doing that in the oven, at what temperature would you do that at? I do it probably 425. I do it on a rack over a baking sheet, probably. Okay. Another thing you could do if you don't want to do it whole is to have it lengthwise and then score it and then... um, Yeah, you can do that too. Sear it. You can sort of treat it like meat where you do the reverse sear or you sear first. Right. So you either cook it lower and get it really, really soft and then run it under the broiler or you sear it maybe even on top of the stove, cut side down, and then finish it in the oven low and slow. You know, let it totally melt and get tender. It's one of great. the great ingredients. Yeah, I love it whenever I go out and every time I try it at home, it's not, but I've never cooked it this way. I will definitely try those two ways. Great. Yeah, cook it till it's ugly. Yeah. That's it. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks for calling. Perfect. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Okay. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you need help with dinner, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Molly. Hi, Molly. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Ireland. What? Where in Ireland? Yeah, West Cork. Oh, wow. How can we help you today? I've really gotten into the fermentation lifestyle. And one of the things that I've been doing is culturing and making my own butter. Wow. Which has been really fun. Yeah. The benefit of that is the buttermilk that you get. My question is, How do you know when buttermilk's actually gone bad, especially (laughs) cultured buttermilk? Good point. Well, let's start at the top. Can you explain to us what cultured butter is, you know, the process? Yeah. So you just take regular cream and then Mm -hmm. you put a dollop of yogurt in it. That's typically what I do. And then I leave it out until it's all very thick. And then I put it in the refrigerator and then I whip it into butter. And then you whip the heck out of it until it separates into butter and buttermilk. You know, it's very tangy. It's quite acidic because you have already put culture into the original cream. I guess it would keep in the fridge two to three weeks. I think you might even be able to freeze it. Okay, yeah, yeah. And how do you know it's bad? I really believe it will let you know. But let's see what Mr. Kimball has to well, say. Well, it's not me. It's J. Kenji Lopez-Alt, a friend of ours, did a piece in the New York Times four or five months ago, and okay. it was all about expiration dates. And he said they're all bogus. Yeah. And he eats things okay. way past the expiration date because the expiration date, there's a lot of reasons for those dates, but they have little to do when things actually are not edible. So I think Sarah's right. People say, you know, a couple of weeks in the fridge. 
but my guess is you're probably good for a month. I'm a brave eater. You know, I'm all about, like, scrape off the mold and call it good. <laughs> Carry on. So, yeah. But, but then I was like, gosh, you know, I just don't even know when this would be bad. So. No, it's a good question because, you know, how can you tell when something that's naturally sour because sourness would obviously be a test of something being past its expiration date. I think it would smell funky. That's what I think. Okay. I mean, not just okay. sour. I don't know, Chris. What do you think? Well, funky's in. Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong okay. with funky? No, no but I, you I, know what I mean. I, I'd no. say at least a couple of weeks. Yeah, at least. In, yeah. Okay. I'd say yeah. three so weeks. Freezing is possible? Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think you could freeze it for a few months. Yeah. I think it'd be fine. Oh, super. That's and, great. Uh, now I want to make cultured butter. It's so Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, you could get a butter cart on like 26th Street in New York and just sell sell butter. <laughs> I know. I'll put a little bonnet on yeah, or I, something. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Molly, thank you so much. Well, thank you, guys. Yeah. Yes. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Right now, let's talk to Adam Gobnick about what's on his mind this week. Adam, what's up this week? Well... I have been thinking about and, in fact, participating in that extraordinary human emotion that we call crying for joy. When we cry for joy, it's the best kind of crying we do. In fact, it may be the most joyful kind of joy we ever possess. And I have been thinking lately, Chris, about when we cry for joy in the presence of food. Hmm. I should add immediately that I am not an easy crier. I can sit dry-eyed through little women or A Christmas Carol without any difficulty. But not very long ago, I was in Venice, and I went to the fish market, the famous Mercado Mm -hmm. near the uh, Rialto Bridge, and seeing the tiny little vongole and the rich calamari and the countless kinds of shrimp and the bright, deep red tuna, I found tears coming to my eyes. I began to Hmm. cry for joy at the presence of all that beautiful fish. Do you remember Daisy Buchanan in The Great Gatsby? Yes, I do. Cries for joy at the presence of Gatsby's beautiful shirts. shirts. Well, that's exactly how I felt about all that Adriatic seafood. Hmm. Uh, And I bought the vongole, and I took them back to our little apartment, and I made um, a linguine alla vongole for my wife and a friend. I was so overcome, literally overcome with emotion. And I began to think... Chris, about other times in my life when I've had that rare and special emotion of crying for joy in the presence of food. And the first one I thought of was on my very first trip to Paris with my wife. And we had gone to a little bistro called Chez André and had ordered a champagne framboise. And the waitress absentmindedly poured the champagne with one hand and the raspberry liqueur, the framboise, with the other hand, getting in just the right amount of framboise and just the right amount of champagne and just kind of shoved it at us. And tears came to my eyes at the casual beauty of what she'd done. And then when I tried to think of a third instance of this, I remembered coming back from a trip to Paris one summer and going out with my then young, now fully grown son, Luke, at 6 a.m. to get a New York City coffee shop breakfast at my favorite coffee shop and ordering the usual eggs and bacon and potatoes, O'Brien, you know, those good coffee shop potatoes and coffee and rye toast and having exactly the same emotion of being overwhelmed, crying for joy at the presence of that good breakfast. And so I tried to think to myself, what did these three things have in common that would bring such emotion to my heart? And I realized, I think, Chris, 
that each of these things manage to make the rhapsodic routine. They take something that is in itself amazing, uh, the, the beautiful history of uh, fish in Venice or the Parisian combination of sobriety and efficiency, or simply the wonderful American abundance of the coffee shop breakfast, and instead of celebrating them, they just sort of shrugged at them. And then it occurred to me that that's exactly when our feelings are most moved, even those of us who are not easy criers. The best tears sneak up on us from behind. Well, I I would say one other thing, which is similar to what you said. I think when you discover perfection in the ordinary, mm. you, all, all of a sudden you find the sublime where you don't expect to find it. And you go like, wow, there's something mercurial and, and wonderful about this thing in a very plain setting. And, and maybe that applies to many more things in life than food. I, I think it does. And it isn't the normal emotion or one of the normal emotions that we get through the joys of cooking. It, it isn't the sense of satisfaction or generosity, sharing all of those positive emotions. It's the thing that sneaks up on us and says, wow, this is really extraordinary, and nobody is making a fuss about it. I would argue that the things that one thinks should be extraordinary in life never are, mm-hmm. and the ordinary things in life are actually the extraordinary things. That's exactly right. We went to some nice restaurants in Venice, and I was glad to be there, but I wasn't moved seeing all of that beautiful fish laid out casually across all of those countless slabs and counters. That was the overwhelming emotion. It wasn't the one we're prepared for. The ones we're prepared for always underwhelm us a little bit. It's the ones we're unprepared for that hit us like a wave. So to discover the incredible lightness of being, go to your local coffee shop, or keep your heart and mind open. It's the reason to travel. It's the reason to, to do new things. You never know when that moment is going to sneak up on you. You never know when you'll be knocked sideways by the ordinary. Knocked sideways by the ordinary. <laughs> well said. Thank you, Adam. Pleasure talking, as always. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer at The New Yorker. That's it for this week's show. You can find every single one of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, MilkStreetRadio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about us here at Milk Street. Just go to 177MilkStreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch our television show, learn about our magazine and latest cookbook, The World in a Skillet. We're on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.